If you happen to have a Bible with you, would you go ahead and open it up to the book of Luke? I'm going to pull this over here, and you're going to be wanting to look for Luke chapter 11. Maybe you have it electronically, or you have a hard copy. Luke chapter 11. We've been discovering, if you're new to New Hope, um, through the parables. We've been working our way through the parables since last October. We did section one, took a little break. Did section two, took a little break. And now we're into the second week of section three. And along the way, we've been discovering how God uses the parables through the Bible. Historically, the way they are used is to describe what the kingdom of God is like and what eternity is like in heaven and what the nature and character of God is like. But there's a fourth element to it as well. The fourth thing that the parables are used for are to describe God's expectations of us, those of us who belong to him and are in relationship to him, his expectations. So he sets standards with the parables. And you'll find that he does exactly that today. Now, functionally, we've learned what a parable is. You'll see this word on the screen. It's in your notes if you're going to download them today. And a parable is something that's placed alongside something else for the purpose of comparison. And that's exactly what Jesus does. It's a teaching tool. So he takes something from the physical world, a physical illustration, and he lays it alongside a spiritual issue in order to bring light to what that spiritual issue is. Specifically, in today's parable, what Jesus wants to drive home the point is this. He wants you and I, through this parable, to understand what's going on in the background when you're in relationship and talking to God. In other words, prayer. He uses a parable to help us understand what's going on in the background. How are we supposed to approach this issue of conversation with God? And here's why it's so important for us to understand. Because when you have conversations with most people who are in relationship with God about their prayer life, most people would say, if they're being honest, they don't feel as though their prayer life is very good. Just being gut level honest, most people would say, I kind of fall short in that area. I don't do so good. I don't know how to pray the way I'm supposed to. Well, the Bible actually backs up that reality. Look with me up on the screen. It says this in Romans 8:26. Paul wrote, we do not know how to pray as we should. Well, where did Paul get that from? From God, because it was so important to Jesus. Jesus wanted us to understand, well, how do we do this thing? That's where this parable goes, but first there's some setup to it. So join me in Luke chapter 11, and we'll be in verse 1. You'll see it along on the screen. You can follow along that way if you'd like. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, there's a clarity that's coming right out of that sentence immediately that just backs up what you and I just talked about. The disciples are in that same place that most people find themselves in today. The disciples are in the place where they recognize something is lacking. They're not very good at praying. They don't know how to do it the way that they want to do it. They've seen John's disciples do it, and they see there's something lacking in their capacity. Now, when you think of John, you think of John the Baptist as that guy who's Seems like he's almost crazy wearing camel hair clothing and, and he's got a leather belt wrapped around him and he's eating locusts out in the desert. Most people think of that. They think of the prophet John crying in the wilderness. But here, did you notice that John is described as a man of prayer? That's how he's identified by the people who saw him and watched him. So even though John had the privilege of announcing the Messiah to the world, he still had to pray. 
Even though John is filled with the Spirit from the womb of his mother, he still had to pray. Even though John was said by Jesus that there's no one greater born among women, he still had to pray. So Jesus responds to that request. They, they come with a genuine question saying, how do we do this better? Jesus responds with what we would call a model or a pattern. It's not intended to be thoughtlessly just repeated over and over again without thinking about the words, but rather it's a design. Let me show you the design. This is just set up to the parable, mind you. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, if you grew up in church, you're more accustomed to this more comprehensive form of that prayer. You're thinking, wait, there's some words missing there. I know the longer version. Where's that coming from? I didn't read that one before. Maybe you're thinking, that's not the one I know. Well, Luke is presenting a more basic version. He's, he's using the element that Jesus is teaching here. It's just a couple of technical details before we dive into the parable to help you understand this. Matthew and Luke each record the Lord's Prayer just a little bit differently. Matthew presents the longer version because Jesus is in the middle of doing the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus teaches them to pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, you know that one, the longer version. This is much, much shorter. What's John or Luke doing? He's connecting it with the fact that Jesus has this own personal practice. Jesus just finished praying and they watched him. And they're saying, how, how do you do that? We want to do that better. Teach us how to do that. So the the pattern in both Matthew and Luke fits the content of the context that they're in. All that aside, all that technicality, go with me to verse 2. You see just those three words, when you pray. Literally, Jesus is saying, here's your pattern. If you want to do this, and you're going to do this every time, here's your pattern. Whenever you pray, and notice right off the top, Jesus said, you better remember who you're talking to. Remember who it's directed toward. When Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States in the 1960s, his um, press secretary was Bill Moyer. And Bill Moyer was invited to pray at a Joint Chiefs of Staff luncheon. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff are all in the room and they're ready to eat their lunch and he asks everybody to bow their heads and quietly Bill Moyers begins to pray for the lunch. Well, in the midst of his prayer, Lyndon Johnson says, Bill, I can't hear a thing you're saying. Will you speak up? To which Bill Moyer quietly turns to the president and said, Mr. President, I wasn't speaking to you. Remember who he's talking to, right? This is where Jesus is going with this. Remember who you're talking to. It's about God the Father. Now, here's a couple qualifiers as you come into this. The Lord's Prayer is not the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus never had to pray for forgiveness. And he teaches in this prayer to pray for forgiveness. He never had to do that. He never, had to, he, he never did because he never sinned. Jesus taught this for us, the church, meaning this isn't a prayer. Hear this. This isn't a prayer for all people. This is a prayer for those who identify Jesus as Lord. It assumes that those who are in prayer are in God's family, and therefore they can call God Father. So we need to bear down on that part. Go back to verse 2 again. Father, hallowed be your name. 
Now, name here refers to God's reputation. Hallowed be your reputation. Revered be your honor. Those are the thoughts going on along with this statement here. Hallowed be your name. So for God's name to be hallowed, he has to receive the honor that's due him. We'll come back to that. Let's go to the word father. The word father as it's used here is the word Abba in Aramaic. And it had a very specific meaning. To small children, it meant daddy. You'll see that this week when you read the parables book that Rich wrote in this section two that you'll be looking at. So for small children, they would use the word Abba because it referred to daddy, but adults would use this word as well. Adults would use it as a term of endearment when they were referring to their father. So it's both familiar to the children and it's familiar to the adults. Now here's the unique way that it's used in the first century and in the ancient times. It's a remarkable characteristic between the father and the children in the home. Whenever a father entered into the home or into a specific room, if the children were present, the children would immediately stand until the father took his seat. And at that point, when the father, the patriarch of the family, took his seat, then the children, both the small children and the adult sons and daughters, would then take their seat because they revered the father so highly. Try that at home later today. See how, see how you do with that, Dad. Get your, get your kids to stand when you come in the room. John, try that. Get your kids to stand when you come in the room, and then, and then they sit. Now, here's the way you need to put these pieces together of what Jesus is describing, because this is what they understand in the first century. When they hear the word Abba, and they hear him saying, this is the way you talk to the Father. Abba was an affectionate term used of the dad-son, dad-daughter relationship. It's very affectionate, very endearing, but the individual was revered. So you've got the two components going on of, I love my daddy, but I revere my dad. And so they stand out of respect. So in the New Testament, when the word Abba was repeated, it actually would come across surprising to people of that era. Paul uses it in the book of Galatians, and it's repeated again in, in Romans. And Jesus uses it the night that he's arrested. You just celebrated communion today? Well, in that setting, when Jesus is in the garden, he makes a statement that most Christians remember very clearly because before he's arrested, what does he cry out? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if you go back and actually look at Mark 4, 36, Mark 4, 36 records that it says it this way. Abba, Father, Dad, I do not want to go through this. But Father, I revere you so highly, not my will, but your will. You've got the two components going on in Jesus' arrest in the garden. The daddy and yet the reverence in that setting. So when Paul began writing to the church at Galatia, he transferred that Aramaic word, which was very unfamiliar to them, over to the Greek language and used the word Abba. So even the churches in the first century thought so highly of this term Abba that even though it was a foreign word to them, like us having maybe a German word put into the English language, they kept it because Jesus used it. It became so precious to them. So using this title Father as an address for God it's reserved exclusively for those who are in relationship with God as his children. 
That's why I say it's not a prayer for all people. It's a prayer for a pattern for those who are disciples. In other words, we would be more accurate to call this the disciples' prayer because only believers have this privilege of addressing God as a father. So let's pull this together. This is the way more accurately Jesus is stating this. Hallowed be your name is not, hey, how you doing? It's a sense of reverence. It's not, hey, man, what's going on today? But rather, Father, I revere you, but I recognize you're my daddy in the same setting. And the very first detail Jesus designed for you in this pattern is this. Daddy, cause your name to be made famous. Cause your name to be revered. Do that in my life. Cause your name to be honored. If ever we lived in a time when God's name needs to be revered, would it not be now, church? This is, this is the time. I, I would encourage you right where you're at. You're watching at home. You're here in the auditorium. Right now, just stop and ask or whisper up to God. Father, do whatever you have to do in my lifetime, in my generation right now. Do whatever you have to do to bring glory to your name that I would live to see that in a fresh new way. God, do that. Have you noticed that up to this point, the focus is not on you whatsoever? The focus is completely on God. In that first section, it's all about God. And then it flows right into the things that we understand, the basic necessities, the things that we need. Give us this day our daily bread. And, and then it makes a shift. And this is where I want to end with it before we jump into the parable. It, it makes this shift into verse four. Look at this on the screen, five words, and forgive us our sins. Jesus is making this point in no uncertain terms whatsoever. We need a cleansing every time we come to the Father. Not that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't sufficient. He wiped away your sins for all eternity, but that sin that drips from us because we live in this world, the dirt that we get on us, we come before him and say, I, I messed up, God. Daddy, would, would you cleanse me of that? Would you, would you just wash me whiter than snow? Jesus is talking about this regular cleansing that every believer needs. Now, put this in context with the way he's describing it. He's describing a family setting where the children come to the dad. So a son or daughter has done something offensive, and they come to dad not to remain in the family, but rather because they don't want to spoil the relationship within the family. You get the difference. It's not to stay in the family. That's not why you confess. So a son or daughter comes to the dad and has to confess something. This is the context in what Jesus is describing this, saying you've got to come to this place where you confess to him. And at that same point, that hand that's reaching for forgiveness better have one other hand reaching down to a person they need to forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then it concludes as quickly as it started. Abba, will you keep me from temptation? Keep me from going into a temptation place that could destroy me? Don't let me go there. Keep me from yielding. And that's it, he comes to this closure and then he breaks right off into this parable. And the parable is this scene of a Middle Eastern home where the house is quiet, it's the middle of the night, everyone's asleep in one room 
and they're all on one mat, most likely, and I hesitate to use the word mattress because immediately you're thinking like Stearns and Foster or you're thinking like a sleep-by-number. That's not it. This is like a little two-inch pad that's on the floor with pillows all over it, and the family all lays on that mat together. It's a a one-room setting in most villages, and that's the background to what Jesus describes here in verse 5. Look with me. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight. Jesus is such a master storyteller. Did you notice what he just did there? He put you in the story. Suppose one of you has a friend, and you need to go to your friend at midnight. See, he, that's what a good storyteller does. He, he puts you into the story. Jesus has just done this. This is a time of hunters and gatherers, a time of fishermen. There's no stores, there's no preservatives, there's no freezers. It's a battle for bread every single day. It's prior to electricity, it's prior to gas lamps. This is a time of survival. And people are very dependent upon their community. Electricity changed everything about 120, 140 years ago. It changed the way we have habits. Humans used to do everything the same way. The end of the day came and families shut down. And they did a little bit in the evening, maybe by candlelight, but they all went to bed and they got up very, very early the next morning. The next workday started at about 6 a.m. If you had dairy cattle, it started at 4 a.m. like it did for my grandfather. That's when the day began. So no one's awake at midnight because everybody's very tired when they went to bed. Well, look at the next part of verse 5. He comes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, led me three loaves. Verse six, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. The master storyteller again. We, we just learned, give us this day our daily bread and he links bread in with the story and puts it right into the parable. It ties the bread neatly together. In ancient times, a third world country does the same thing today. People who don't have a lot are very dependent upon their neighbors. They depend upon the community that they live in to help them survive. They survive with a commonness. I watched this in Africa. They meet each other's needs where they can. We're not talking about communism, we're talking about commonism, where they hold all things together in common, just like in the first century church. So most people made enough bread just for that day. And and some who were shrewd would make enough bread at night for the next day. And most people in the community, because the villages were not that big, they knew who was baking bread at night. It wafted through the village. You you can smell it. Some households made bread the night before. When my wife makes bread in our house, I can smell it a long way away. I don't have to be in the kitchen to know she's baking fresh bread. It's like living in Paneraville, right? You know that sense that I'm talking about here. Well, Jesus is painting this picture for them when he describes in Luke chapter 11, friend, look at these words, friend, lend me three loaves. Well, hospitality is the basic law of the day. It's the basic rule in the Middle East. If a person refuses a guest, they brought disgrace upon the village. A neighbor would bring disgrace upon themselves and the village would ostracize them if they didn't receive a guest. Well, this man doesn't want to embarrass himself. And he doesn't want to embarrass his family or his village. So he's got this midnight traveler that just showed up unexpectedly. He needs to take care of them. So he comes midnight knocking at his neighbor's door. 
Uh, You would expect to succeed with a friend where you might have failure with someone who's a stranger. What do I mean by that? When you're in relationship with someone, you expect success when you make a request. If later today you're driving down the road this afternoon and you come across a car that's broken down and the hood is up and you come upon that car and you see Mark Kring standing there with his thumb out going like this, you're not going to drive on by, right? Right, I hope. You're not just going to wave at me as you're driving on by and you're not going to put your phone to your face thinking, I hope he doesn't know me and and you, you won't do that, right? Or I'll have to use you as a sermon illustration sometime. I do this regularly to my kids, just ask them. You wouldn't do that because with a friendship, you expect you're going to have some degree of success. What should we expect from the relationship with our Abba? What should we expect from God the Father if we belong to him through a love relationship with Jesus Christ, the very one who died for you? the very one whom you celebrate with the communion cup. What should you expect when you've got that one on your side? Will he not freely give us all things? Well, that sounds like a scripture verse, doesn't it? Look with me on the screen at this. It's Romans. It sounds like that because it is. Romans 8, 31. What What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You got this midnight arrival going on. And with the midnight arrival, it's not all that uncommon. In the Middle East, people traveled at night because of the heat and the day in arid areas, but in elevated areas, they travel during the daytime. So either way, this is not an unfamiliar setting to people. A midnight traveler is not that unusual. So rather than insult his surprise guest with too little bread and not meeting the need, he knows which family in town has been baking, and he's ready to go to their house and knock on the door. He knows who's got a good supply, because everybody knows in town who's got a good supply, and he goes knocking. Now here comes the twist that Jesus throws in. The twist is there's a father on the other side of the door there, And he doesn't want to disrupt his family. It's a one-room setting. The family's asleep. Nobody wants to be awake at midnight if they've been working hard all day, especially if you've got children sleeping. So he does respond, and he responds negatively. Go away. Watch with me in the next verse, verse 7. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the neighbor's not returning the greeting friend, right? He's just saying, get out of here. Don't bother me. He's irritated. Some doors in the first century were especially common. They had these drop-through ring systems that were made out of iron. Many of the doors were crafted of very heavy, thick wood with an iron bracket system on them. You think of like the prayer room door over there. It's very heavy, four or 500 pounds. These doors that were in the ancient Middle East are very heavy. The, the iron in combination with them made a lot of creaking when they opened up. And so if that was the case, when you're up to do that, you're not the only one up. Your whole household is up. My children are asleep. I'm in a one-room setting. If I open the door, I'm going to wake up the whole family. Now, before we get to verse 8... Let me introduce a word to you from verse 8. Just look at a section there. 
because of his persistence in verse 8 it says. That's the Greek word persistence is in your notes this morning but you'll see it on the screen as well. This, this is referring to shamelessness. This particular Greek word has got the thought of it of someone who's really brash. And I don't necessarily mean in a negative way. I mean someone who's bold, who's confident. This is the way that this is implied here. So put it together with this thought in verse 8. Let's go to the whole verse. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Because of the shamelessness, the refusal to give up until his neighbor meets his need, Jesus says he then gets up and gives him whatever he needs. And I'm here to ask this question this morning. Are we supposed to pray like that? Is that what Jesus is talking about? When you read this, does this give you a sense of squeamishness? Like, have you ever prayed that way before the Father? And yet Jesus is coming and saying, when you approach him, here's how you're supposed to pray. And then he gives a parable to drive it home. This particular Greek word is describing someone who sets aside all sense of shame. They're brash and they're bold and they have a lot of nerve. And in the context of the story, the neighbor finally gets out of bed and he gives him whatever he needs because the guy knocking on the door is annoyingly persistent. We, we might use the word urgent there. Now consider this. Jesus is not saying God is like this grouchy neighbor who won't get out of bed. What he's showing you is just the opposite. Actually, the point he's driving here is this. If a worn-out neighbor who's tired from all of his daily activities will respond and give his neighbor what he needs, how much more your Abba in heaven, how much more because of the one who died for you, when you become his child, how much more will that one meet the needs of his children who are his own? God's not like this neighbor. He, God never sleeps. God's never irritated. He's always generous in meeting the needs of his children, which leads to this final major point that we need to close with. And I'll show you how we land this plane and tie, tie all these things together. Take this thought of prayer, however you came in this morning thinking of prayer, bring it to this issue. If you know God is sovereign, if you know that he has a design for everything, that he's all powerful and he's all wise, perhaps you're one who thinks, what's the point of praying, Mark? God never changes. Who am I to change his mind? Well, let me do a deep dive with you on that one as we end this. The problem with knowing that God is all-powerful and that he's all-wise and that he's sovereign is that we do come to this conclusion. Prayer really doesn't serve a purpose. I, I don't want to bother him. Besides, he's got it all figured out. He already knows what he's going to do. He's not going to change his plan because of me. Well, if that's your thinking, you're correct. God never changes anything, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. 
Why? Because he never gets more information. God never gets more information. He knows everything there is to know, so all his ways are fixed. So how do I understand this? Look with me at what Scripture says, Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. In other words, I've got lots of plans. I've got lots of ideas. I come up with schemes all the time. I know you do too. We have many plans, but our plans change all the time because we gain more information. The circumstances change. What you had planned to do back in January is way different than what you're doing in July. Hello. We get more information. The circumstances change. With God, he never gets more information. The circumstances never change for him. He sees the beginning from the end. So prayer can't possibly be about changing God's mind, and it certainly is not about giving him more information. So what's it about? It's about putting yourself in the place where you can be used by God to accomplish his perfect purposes. How do I understand that? I'm going to give you a perfect example for that, and it comes from the Old Testament. I, I don't know how many of you love the book of Nehemiah like I do. If you haven't read it before, or maybe it's been a long time, read it. It's a fantastic history book. But essentially, Nehemiah is a, a prophet living in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to read to you verse 1 of chapter 1. He's in prayer mode, and you're not going to see it come up on the screen. Just hear me on this. Maybe even close your eyes and just listen to this. I don't, I don't care if you're at home or live in the auditorium. Just listen to verse 5. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Now hear this. You can tell right away from verse 5. Nehemiah understood that God is sovereign. Nehemiah understood that God is awesome. Nehemiah understood all of those details, and yet, here comes verse 6, and this one I am going to put on the screen. Watch Nehemiah go into prayer. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. Have you ever talked to God like that? Or does it make you a little squeamish to say, Father, will you listen to me? Turn your eyes towards this situation. Will you put your ear to this? That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's storming the gates of heaven. He knows God's awesome. He knows God's all-powerful. But he's willing to say, God, I'm talking to you. Open your eyes to this. Have you ever done that? I have a few times when opportunity and frustration meets up with boldness. In other words, you get so frustrated over whatever is going on in your life, you're willing to storm the gates and say, God, will you listen to this? God, see my situation. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Many people would say awkward, even to the degree it would make them squeamish because most people will go before the Father and will pray like this. Hey, uh, it's me again. 
and I don't want to bother you. I know you got a lot going on. Um, you know, maybe if you could attend to this thing. I, I understand if you can't, though. There's no boldness there. Look at the way that David prayed. Psalm 17, 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. You got David and you got Nehemiah saying the same thing and you've got Jesus saying the same thing. I believe Jesus is asking us to approach our conversation with God this way. When my children were little and they really wanted my attention and maybe I was distracted and I wasn't listening all that close to them, they had this habit and I watched them do it with my wife too. It was pretty funny. Bet your kids have done this. Children, maybe you've done this. They'd come up and grab me by the cheeks and turn my head, push my lips into a pucker. Daddy, listen to me. I don't want you to get that analogy mixed up with saying you've got to grab God by the cheeks. But that's what's going on here. It, it, there's an assumption by Jesus in the midst of this that we would always come before him with an attitude of not my will, but yours be done. You're the Abba whom I revere, whom I stand in attention for. But you're in the daddy relationship with me. Daddy, will you give me your attention on this? This I see Jesus describing this because prayer is not about changing God's mind and it's not about giving him more information. He already has all the information. It's about putting yourself in the place where God can use you for God to accomplish his purpose in your life through his perfect plans. Think this through with me. Trying to change God's mind on any particular issue is to say, hey, you know what? I've got more information than you do. I know more about this. Let's go with my idea. It's to assume that God doesn't have all the information. So Jesus is teaching us to boldly, brashly, shamelessly pray into the means into the means by which God achieves his purposes. In other words, praying this way. God, I don't understand all these circumstances, but will you use me in this? Daddy, will you pay attention to this? How are you going to use me in this situation? I don't understand it all. You have the information. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, just like it's being done in heaven. But I need you to use me in this. So if you're thinking, what in the world is the purpose of praying? The answer is this. Because God is sovereign, that means he's ordained the means to accomplish the end. He knows what's going to be accomplished. He's inviting you to be part of that through prayer. Wouldn't you rather be part of the means of God accomplishing his purposes than being a bystander? I could be a spiritual slacker. I could just stand off to the side and say, God, just use somebody else. I'll just watch. Prayer is about saying, God, how are you going to use me in this? How will you bring about your purposes in my life? I'd far rather be part of his means to accomplish his purposes, knowing that he's used me. And the Bible tells us to pray for that reason. Uh, John MacArthur, I, I like reading John's books, and he really captured this in one of his books pretty well. Let me show you a quote on the screen. You can't be saved without believing. Factual statement. You can't be sanctified without obeying. Factual statement. And 
You can't enjoy the goodness of God, he's talking about here on earth, you can't enjoy the goodness of God in this life without participating in his unfolding purposes through your prayers and through your service to him. Put this in context. Like everything else, God knew about your salvation from before the foundation of the earth. He knew what your decisions were going to be. The Bible is very clear on that. If he didn't, he's not God. So this means through your faith, you will not be saved without faith in Jesus. You won't be saved without faith in Jesus. Somebody say amen if you agree with that. You believe that. You won't be saved without faith in Jesus. Well, if that's true, it's also true, you will not enjoy the goodness of God in this life without participating in prayer to the end that, God, I want you to use me. Use me in this situation that's going on. So Jesus ends it this way, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds him. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. A better translation in the Greek language is keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, because it's written in a present imperative in the Greek language. Keep on. Don't stop. It's continual. If you did it yesterday, keep doing it today, keep doing it tomorrow. Keep on knocking, keep on asking, keep on seeking. And with all that, Jesus says, don't be hesitant to be bold and don't be embarrassed. He's your daddy. He's your Abba. You revere him, but you come before him as a father-child relationship. So whatever you're going to ask for, just know this, it must be when God answers it, that it's something that's really good for us. Because it's not going to work against his principles. God causes all things to work together for good. Well, he's only going to let the good things, and I know it doesn't always feel good, but he's only going to do something that doesn't work against his principles. He won't allow that thing into your life which works against that truth. God causes all things to work together for good. Now, here's how I end this. I know this to be true. My father, my Abba, your father, your Abba, he hears and he answers, not just to meet the needs of his children, but to meet them in such a way that brings glory to his name. So that even the people watching you who may not know God would be driven to stand out of reverence for that one. Hallowed be thy name. Holy be your reputation. Famous be your reverence. I'm gonna pray right now with you that God would seal this reality into your life this week. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, we come before you in your presence knowing that we do have the daddy relationship with you. And as awkward as that might seem for some of us, because it may not seem as reverent, we still recognize that you've told us that you see us as your children. Help us to get that part straight in our mind, Father. And that we can come to you boldly and confidently that you hear us 
So I pray for new hope as a church, and I pray for us independently as individuals, that this week, that you would be made more famous, that your reputation would be greater in the community because of the work you're doing through us, through your church and through your people. God, I ask that you would draw greater fame to yourself, that your honor would be exalted. And at the same time, you would meet our needs and give us our daily bread. And that you would continue to extend that cleansing to us when we're dripping in sin, unfortunately. And God, we would ask that you do keep us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory. And we can say all these things and even talk to you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's in his most excellent name we pray to you. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.